Welcome to the Head Shepherd Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Ferguson, CEO at NextGen Agri International, where we help livestock managers to get the best out of their stock. I want to take this opportunity to thank our friends at MSD Animal Health and Allflex for sponsoring Head Shepherd again this season. And I'm also excited to introduce our mates at Heinegger as brand new sponsors of the show. MSD and Allflex, or perhaps better known as Cooper's Animal Health in Australia, offer one of New Zealand and Australia's largest livestock product portfolios with a comprehensive suite of animal health and management products connected through identification, traceability and monitoring solutions. Like us, they see how the wealth and breadth of information born out of this podcast can help them and their farming clients achieve their mission of the science of healthier animals. Heineken will need a little introduction to our audience, a market leader and one-stop shop for wool harvesting and animal fibre removal, together with an expanding range of agricultural products and inputs. The Heineken name is synonymous with quality, reliability and precision. The Heineken team have a deep understanding of livestock agriculture, backed by Swiss engineering and a family business dedicated to manufacturing the best. It's fantastic to have both of these sponsors supporting us in bringing Head Shepherd to you each week. And now it's time to get on with this week's episode. Welcome back to Head Shepherd. We are heading into the Angus world again. We've had a few Angus uh, guests on and great to have Christian Duff, uh, General Manager at Genetic Improvement here at Angus Australia. Welcome, Christian. Thanks, Mark. Good to be here. Excellent. We might just start, as we do, with a bit of your background, mate, and, and talk about how you ended up involved in, in genetics uh, in a fairly big way and, and with Angus, I suppose. Sure. Yeah. Thanks, Mark. Well, um, uh, my background uh, in agriculture and livestock started from me growing up, so we, we've always had commercial cattle breeding operations around northern New South Wales um, um, in Australia and uh, always been involved in cattle breeding um, on a commercial aspect initially, so that got me interested in in cattle and agriculture um, and then I, when I went to university I focused on agriculture as well. I actually went to University of Queensland. Uh, I didn't go to the University of New England in Armadale like everyone assumes. Uh, I, I headed north mainly because my agricultural teacher told me I was uh, spread my wings because I'm from this area so I'd get out and meet new people and, and, and find out new things. It was a really good bit of advice actually. So so got, got to know a new cohort of friends and, um, and, and colleagues that are now in the industry in the north particularly. Um, so from there, I uh, did a four-year rural science, rural technology degree, um, did an honours year, um, mainly focusing on nutrition, actually. I did, did some, some research projects with Ridge Agri-Products at the time in a small research feedlot on, on one of our campuses at University of Queensland. Did a little bit of genetics. Um, I was always interested in genetics because we were from a cattle breeding operation, but um, where I really delved into genetics is my first job out of university. I, like everyone, when you finish a degree, I apply for lots of different roles and Ended up getting a position with ABRI, who are the commercialisers of Breedplan. Um, I worked for in their Breedplan analytics team, their processing team, for about a year and a half out of Armidale, um, where I processed data and, and analysed data for I think of Herefords and um, a few of the other smaller breeds. Um, so that, that was a good introduction into the performance recording and genetic evaluation world uh, from a Breedplan perspective, and that that was a good sound base for where I am now. Yeah. Yeah, excellent. So yeah, always always been in and around the industry like most of our guests. There's, we get the odd one that's come from left field, but most of us have are relatively embedded. And um, yeah, congratulations on on leaving the hill, mate. There's not not that many people that get out of Armadale and go do something different. But, yeah, say that. Got to be careful there. The uh, uh, I'm always, I guess, amazed by the power of quantitative genetics. I guess, uh, what have you seen over your time of the power of quantitative genetics to to change a species? Oh, well, it's an amazing tool um, if you're patient. So I think that's something I've learned. You, 
Um, you, you can definitely use genetics to change things for the better and the worse. And with uh, with cattle and beef cattle, particularly with, with longer gestations intervals, compared to other species or other animals, you just got to be patient, and um, you can you can see it happen. And a good example of that is what we see in the genetic trends in the in the Australian Angus population. You know how we've been able to keep a foothold on birth weight and increase growth and um, have increasing IMF and marbling and, and, and Imusleria and sort of plateauing fats. Like there's all these interesting um, things happening, and that doesn't happen just by chance. That's by using tools and quantitative genetics to make that happen. Um, hopefully for the benefit of the commercial industry, um, so everyone makes a little bit of extra money and a little bit of extra sustainability and productivity along the way. So it's a, it's a really um, it's a really powerful tool, that's for sure. As long as you're patient and have probably more importantly a focused goal going forward, whether that's a breed group like Angus or whether it's an individual breeder, that's sort of the, the keys that I've picked up along the way. Yeah, good points, and yeah, definitely a powerful tool that you can wield in in for good or for bad, or for <laughs> or you can sort of you don't obviously don't aim to be bad, but often you might have missed a correlated trait that you that you bit of a gotcha when as you mm. get down the track, and obviously there's um oh, I guess battling inbreeding and all sorts of things as you as we go down this track and finding these new curly little additions to the things you got to test for that you that you, we find in breeds like Angus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and and um, there's always challenges that crop up. There's there's new things you need to breed for. You need to when you're breeding, you got to think about what's happening in the future. Um, what are the consumers' expectations, particularly? What are their on-farm issues that are going to be arising? Um, also, what can happen in relation to you know something that that happened in the Angus world um, probably ten years ago now was the the um, popping up of a few genetic conditions we had to deal with, and we learned a lot over that time. Um, and, and luckily, we had the tools and the the breeders that you now can breed around that information, but still make sure we're making genetic gain as a, as a breed group. So it's um, you know with the information and with some some strategic thinking, you can you can do some powerful things with genetics. That's for sure. Um, but importantly, you can you can avoid the risks or reduce the risks and, and make sure we're getting the gains as well. Yeah, excellent. The uh, we're going to bounce around a few different traits that I think are probably or seem to be the ones that are going to be the focus of the future at least. And I mean, there's however many things 30 different things you can breed a cow for or more than that but um certainly a lot of breeding values that you report every every mm. every run and um i thought we might start with with methane it's something that's obviously uh pretty topical and breeding for low methane does have the potential to reduce our carbon footprint um and that's going to get big business interested i think and yeah i guess there's different differing opinions about this topic but I guess I'd be keen to hear your thoughts on how big the potential is to reduce methane and sort of what's the scale of variation we're working with if we've got that far down the track yet. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We're still, um, in relation to, to methane and, and, and having that information in our genetic evaluation, that's that's a, a focus for Angus Australia at present uh, with our collaborators, I mean, Livestock Australia and, and New South Wales DPI and particularly the University of New England. So, where we're at at this point in time in the research is we're recording lots of data, so recording direct methane measurements on on um, Angus cattle and, and also some other breeds in the Southern Molding Breed Project. So it's a it's an industry program. Um, um, we were obviously as a breed group as Angus in Australia and New Zealand um, keen to get a bit more information. So we're building up that reference population for research and also hopefully for a future breeding value. So uh, that's why we've invested directly to get. Um, uh, more direct Angus cattle recorded for this trait, particularly through our side benchmarking program, our, our progeny test reference population program, which I'll be managing for 
uh, nearly 10 years now. Um, so we had a good good group of cattle to focus on. Um, uh, it's one of those traits that, um, you know, look, looking strategically as an organisation about where you want to be with information for your members to breed with in the future, it's, it's, a, it's a pretty easy one to understand we need to be working in this space so we can be part of the, you know, um, solution to an issue that's coming upon all of us in agriculture and, and other industries, obviously. So, um, and obviously as, an, as a group, Angus Australia, where can we get involved? Um, you know, we're, we're not here to produce feed additive, additives to to change uh, methane emissions or anything like that. That's not our space. Our space is to provide information to make selection decisions for our members. And that's why we're involved in this collaborative research. So we have uh, hopefully in the future, and I think the future won't be too far away. I was expecting the next two to three years, we'll have some least research breeding values for methane output of some sort. I don't know what the exact trade definition will be yet, but um, through that project, have something out there. Because based on the prior research, so New South Wales Department of Prime Industries did a lot of uh, research in this space initially with Angus cattle, and they used the methane chambers to, to measure methane output on about 1,000 Angus animals. Um, and we've got about 150-odd with the current green feed systems, which is the, the in-pen systems. Um, so we've got a nice little group of data there now, which is which is um, which is great. Um, but that gave us with the information out of that research, and I won't quote all the figures out of it because there's lots of information and it's all published, um, showing us there is a lot of variation in the Angus breed for methane output, and appropriately for us anyway, the um, a, a fair chunk of that variation is heritable. So it's a, some of the variation explained by genetics, which varies between sort of 0.2 and 0.3 depending on what paper you look at so it's quite terrible so if you want to make a change it's it's higher than weaning weight and it's probably about the same as yielding weight or something so if you want to change methane output genetically it looks like we can do it but that's off a reasonably small data set that's where we're now collecting a lot more data uh, in this new low methane beef program um, we're trying to get data on at least eight thousand uh, beef animals and about a third of those will probably be angus um, so that that's going to be a the next step to look at that data, see whether you can repeat those variance components, the heritabilities. Um, and importantly, Mark, I assume there's going to be your next question is about how, how does it affect other traits? Because these cattle we're measuring are recorded for a range of other things as well. And then data sets with lots of other information like fertility and calving ease and carcass quality, and eating quality, and all those sorts of things. So if we do want to pull the handle and reduce methane, how does it affect other things? That's obviously from a breeding programming design perspective, that's a really important thing to understand. <laughs> yeah, no, that definitely is going to be my next question, and that's obviously that what that big data set is going to prove or going to answer. Yeah, that's right. So um, there's only one thing uh, you answer those questions, that's to create data. Um, so luckily with, with Angus Australia and um, before I started with Angus nine and a half years, um, eight and a half years ago, nearly nine years this, this July, yeah, they invested in the Angus Sire Benchmarking Program, which is a initially there as a sort of a traditional produce test program, but it's turned into what's now called a reference population programs, animals that are genotyped and phenotyped for lots of things, including lots of hard-to-measure things. Um, and importantly, not just the hard-to-measure things, but also all the other production traits as well that we normally record in industry, like our birth weights and docility scores and weaning weights and things. So so we can use that as to underpin our genetic evaluations to um, – you know, for these hard-to-measure traits that we, re in reality, we're not going to get um, a lot of measurements from industry because they're really high cost to do to methane recording. Um, I've heard values of a thousand dollars a head thrown around. I don't know if that's accurate, but it's it's a it's a large number, right? So, yeah, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a big number. So, um, to get a to get a methane measurement costs a lot, 
Um, um, so that's not for everyone, but it is for a sort of a group like ours where we can get co-funding from industry and, and other collaborators involved. Yeah, cool. Do we? I guess there's a bit of work in sheep in New Zealand, and obviously the DPI work in in cattle. Do we know what's actually going on in the rumen? Is there are we that far? Like a, an animal that produces ten percent less methane. Do we know how it's doing that? Yeah, the biology. There has been a bit of work historically done in in the bi- biological area by um, Robert Hurd, particularly. So there are there are some papers there, but for these. Um, cattle that we're recording, particularly the southern multi-breeding component of those, they are taking um, rumen fluid samples to, to look at that. So that, that'll be part of the research. I think it's an important part to understand the biology a bit, that's for sure. Not my area of expertise, but I think it's important we understand that. That's that's where we can we can collect those those um, those samples and, and look at the relationship between what's happening in the microbiome in the rumen and, and, and methane output as well. I think that's a, an important part of the research. Yeah, and as you say, genetics are slow, so sometimes understanding the biology means we can maybe not hit the brick wall as hard as we would have otherwise if we know <laughs> something was going yeah. AY that we didn't expect. Yeah, absolutely. Look, I think, um, you know, given these cattle have a lot of other traits recorded on them, and, and I'd say they cover most of the important commercial traits, in the, and they're in a larger data set, for example, the, the overall Australian Angus data set, um, we should pick up the genetic correlations pretty well. Um, but there's also probably unknowns there, right, that we don't have a lot of data on something. So it's important we look at it from a number of angles, I agree, before we go out there and suggest people breed this way or that way or we pro- at least produce information to allow them to make their own decision on how they want to breed for this trait in the future. Yeah, I think that's the beauty that each to their own, but the uh, but at least if they've got the power to do it and do it efficiently, um, there's no other way than, than using a breeding way to do it that, that, that's the only tool that will work, so so it's good that the work is is underway. Spot on, yep. The one trait that's kind of always uh, intrigued me, and and I noticed that your name was on a couple of papers of, of all this uh, around this area, so I thought that's why I'd hit you up with a question on it. But um, breeding for immune competence is is uh, something that's I guess interesting. Obviously, a lot of the traits that of our traits that we might focus on. Uh, could be somewhat impacted by the immune system, uh, particularly in the, the work we do around foot rot and worms and stuff. It's um, mm. the immune, spot, immune response has got a bit to do that. What's been found in the sort of variation in immune competence in, in Angus cattle? Yeah, so um, immune competence is, a, is an area we've been working with the CSIRO, Australia's National Federal Science Agency, for Nearly when when the the ASPP first started ten years ago, they came in. And they said we want to do some phenotyping with this novel phenotyping method to to measure immune competence in weaners. So when they're under stress, measure two strains of their immune system, which is the cell mediated and the antibody mediated systems. One's sort of intracellular, one's extracellular. So trying to pick up the you know where there could be a number of um, um, issues um, related to disease, not just looking at a specific disease. So it's more of a broad measure of immunity. Um, and it was, um, has been ground truth, I guess, to see or research in the dairy industry and the pig industry. So it's not a, it's a brand new trade. It's sort of been looked at in those industries, but now applied to, to the beef industry. So with we, the CSRO, we recorded immune competence um, in, in those two ways, antibody and cell-mediated. Um, we've now got about six or 7,000 animals in our reference population through the ASBP, so a good data set, showing there's plenty of variation in it as well. If you look at a, one group of wieners on the... Bred by fixed time AI, born within 
20, 30 days of each other, you know, there's there's a there's a large amount of variation in their immune response. Um, and um, similar to what I just said about methane, the heritability is around that 0.2 to 0.25 for for our immune competence traits. Um, so showing that if you want to select for higher immune response cattle, you could. Um, so we, we've released a at Angus Australia. We've actually released a research breeding value immune competence. So if you if you now genotype through Angus Australia on our registered cattle, we'll we'll provide an immune competence research breeding value. But we're still calling it a research breeding value because we're still working through with Syro the links to specific diseases. So the one we're doing the most work with with Syro and Syro is doing particularly um, a lot of work with MLA is the relationship between immune competence and bovine respiratory disease in, in feedlots in Australia. So that's obviously a the large uh, cost um, in, in welfare concern in, in feedlot cattle, so and particularly Angus, um, we're, we're not immune to it. So that's where we're looking at relationships and there definitely is a link um, looking at a couple of research trials now between higher immune competence cattle have less mortalities. Um, you still get an illness, but they seem to recover and go back to the pen compared to staying in the hospital pen and even dying. So... Um, but we just want a bit more information to to back it up before we release it as a full blown estimated breeding value. Um, but it's looking looking very promising, that's for sure. The other disease we want to try and link it to in the future is um, pink eye. To see there's a relationship between pink eye um, um, resilience and, and immune competence as well. Um, given that's a sort of a multifactorial disease uh, caused by a range of things, we, we're keen to see with the relationships there as well. Um, but we need the pink eye data to do that. And we've actually just started a little project to start collecting pink eye, standardised pink eye phenotypes, um, which will be which will be important. It's, a, it's actually interesting when you think about it. It's shown a little bit of a, uh, the maturing of our genetic evaluation, our R&D focus. Like we've, Angus in the in, in the past, and the beef industry past done very well at focusing on the production traits, and that's great. Um, um, and we should continue to do that. We should take our foot off the pedal. Um, but... We know if we don't look at resilience and sustainability traits at the same time, we could, um, like similar like the, the the methane and the rumen issue, if we if we don't know, we could be going down a path we don't want to go. Um, one thing it looks like with the looking at the immune competence data and the some of the other production traits, because the cattle we're recording have all these other all this other performance data on, is is there is a negative correlation, particularly between uh, the weight and the muscle traits in immune competence. It's not very strong, so it's not a, it's not a, an overly um, strong correlation, but there's definitely is a correlation there, which is supported if you look at other other livestock species and immune competence as well. That um, if you really uh, push performance, um, you might be genetically reducing immune resilience, not at a huge rate, but a, but at a slow rate over time. Um, so I think that's that's something we we need we need to know more about. Yeah, awesome. That's really interesting work. And yeah, I mean, obviously, even if it has a small impact on some of those big diseases, that setting an animal up that it, and may yeah, may respond more quickly to treatment and whatever is um, it's pretty cool. And yeah, we yeah. sort of focus a fair bit of our effort on not just yeah, I guess we've yeah we've been all been guilty of chasing production traits, but but traits that save your time, save your money, um, are, mm. are fairly important as well. And, and obviously, these welfare traits fit into that category. Yeah, just just the other the other thing in relation to that, I found an interesting finding is um, the the way you test immune competence, you actually um, use a vaccine to do it, and then you test the response to that vaccine. So you're testing the antibody response and the cell cell response. And what you find when you when you vaccinate cattle, and we, I vaccinated weaners 
a week ago. You vaccinate all and you assume they're all going to have the same coverage because you vaccinate all of their two mils or two and a half mils or whatever you give them. It's not the case. Some some respond really well to the vaccine and some just don't respond. You might as well not vaccinate them. And that's just variation within the group, right? Um, so if we can, another way to think of immune competence, if we can breed cattle or reduce the ones with really low immune competence, we also get better efficacy of our vaccines, for example. So there's all these these things where we're learning on the way, such as that. Oh, yeah, cool. And uh, obviously mm. we've all got... We're all expert in vaccines these days. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the last few years, and and yeah, I mean, well, there's yeah, definitely people out there that obviously didn't respond to the COVID vaccines either. So yeah, so it's um yeah, no, it's intriguing to to think about how we can change the animals. Is um yeah, something that has always intrigued me because I well, you know, we work a fair bit in merino sheep, and we know that the immune system competes for sulfur amino acids, and so does with wool. So something mm. I always think about that we're breeding an animal to be um, yeah, putting a bit of putting a bit of pressure on the immune system when we see that with with worm resistance and and things. So yeah, it's an interesting area that I think we'll learn a lot more over time. But not cheap work and not easy work. You need a lot of big numbers and, and lots of data. Yeah, that's it exactly. A quick interruption here to remind you of Head Shepherd Premium and our consulting services at Next Gen Agri International. If you love this podcast and want to hear more of them, visit thehub.nextgenagri.com and sign up for Head Shepherd Premium and get an extra podcast each week. If you're listening to this and thinking you really do want to maximise the genetic gain of your livestock and feel more confident around the decisions you're making on farm, then send me an email at mark at nextinagri.com and we'll get in touch and see see where that takes us. I guess it would be unfair to talk about Angus without talking about IMF. It's a, it's a big part of selection focus for many breeders mm-hmm. over the last sort of decade. Intrigued to know what we know now about what we're actually doing in selecting for IMF. Obviously, well, I think I'm right in, th- in saying that that's uh, it's traditionally been the last depot laid down by an animal, and, and obviously that's why as they get older they lay it down. But are we what as we selecting for it? Are we changing when it's laid down, as in proportion to other fat, or are we just um, are we just speeding up them laying down their fat? Or how's all? Do we know what's going on in the animal? Yeah, it's it's interesting, uh, interesting question that I'm definitely not a, probably an expert in the biology of all that, but it what I can probably relate that to is what we're seeing genetically in the Angus population. So. You're right, there has been selection focus on, on IMF and marbling in Angus, and that's been a commercial demand, so wanting, wanting marbling, particularly through our feedlot operations here. And um, I know recently went to a large feedlot in South Australia and, you know, they're, they're upping their focus on marbling because they know they're trying to, like New Zealand, Australia needs to produce a quality product, not necessarily compete for all their product on the commodity market. They want to compete for the high V. That's where we can, can make some gains. Um, and marbling comes into that's one way people value, I guess, the higher higher beef product. So um, I can't see the the focus on marbling coming off based on recent conversations, and I'm assuming the same in New Zealand, from what I understand. So, yeah. so yeah. Um, what we've learned uh, selecting it's one of those traits that's really heritable. So we actually just updated our the Angus um, genetic parameters last December. Um, we do that about every ten years. Um, and the heritability for carcass IMF, which is related to marbling, um, went from about 0.35 to 0.53. Yeah, right. So it's it's had a big increase, which is good. Um, mm-hmm. We pick up more variation, we can make more progress, but it's just um, showing that over time, um, you know, genetically things change a bit. It's also a bit to do with the, with the data set we're now looking at through the ASBP and other things. Um, so you can change you can change marbling. It's like anything here. If you change marbling, you increase you have really high marbling cattle, how does it change everything else? Luckily, we've got lots of other information you select on and the, and the correlations are 
you know, the reason to be strong with some things like um, yield, I think it's a negative 0.4 correlation with, with beef yield, um, which would say that's that's pretty strong in relation to a, a trait term, but you can still find animals that have high yield and higher marbling. you just got to record lots and find them, that's all. Um, so what you're seeing generally in the overall Angus population, um, Australia and New Zealand, is that your uh, IMF's increasing, nearly, nearly linear over the last 10 years, like it just keeps going up. Because um, of the selection, ribbon rump fat in the 400 kilogram steer carcass is plateauing off, and it's probably just starting to little, increase a little bit. So we've we've got a molina over probably probably 10 years ago, and they've sort of tailored off now. It's just just starting to to tailor up a little bit, not not at a huge level, but um, I think there is a little bit more focus on more subcutaneous fat, mainly for the cow herd discussions, and that's a whole another another talk. Um, yeah. And our muscle area is nearly following the same trend as IMF, so. Through selection, um, you know the, the breeders in Australia are generally putting in more marbling, more muscle, and holding fat down. So that would sort of lead me to think there probably is a little bit of change in in the composition in Angus and what they look like. So if you looked at an Angus um, 20 years ago and you, and you looked at one today or even 30 years ago, you know you can get Angus now that have more marbling, bigger bigger eye muscles, and, and more moderate subcutaneous fat. Whereas if you know, um, 20 or 30 years ago, you probably have to, had to have a lot of subcutaneous fat to get to that same level of marbling. That would be my perception of it all, but I'll be happy to happy to be challenged on that one. <laughs> yeah, no, that seems to make sense. And you'll be looking at that number, uh, that numbers of what's changing more than more than most. So we'll, we'll run with your your assumptions there. <laughs> yeah, that's also a function of um, similar what's happening in America. So um, if you look at the American populations and their carcass trends, you know they are definitely. Um, keeping a foot on subcutaneous fat more than we are probably. They 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 generally select the other way for it um, for yield basis, but they're also increasing marbling. So, in our population here is is large has a huge influence off the American population, obviously. So, sort of just a um, similar ob- observation across those two groups. Yeah. Yeah, definitely, and obviously, yeah, very much a lead from from the US in terms of the genetics. That- end up filtering into Australia plus some great Australian mm. bulls as well the obviously it's a combination of genomics and and those reference herds as well as ultrasound uh, ultrasound scanning in, in live animals is they equally as powerful or is the is it the been the reference population that's really kicked that into gear um, the reference population with genomics and those direct abattoir carcass phenotypes has added a huge amount of value but we shouldn't undersell how useful ultrasound scanning is, particularly because obviously that's the trait that our sea stock producers can record. Something I've been looking at a little bit is what is the what is the value of ultrasound scanning, particularly for IMF. Um, there there is still some value, but it's up to the up to the person, um, individual, about how much ac- extra accuracy you get through scanning, particularly for animals that are already genotyped and linked into the reference population. Um, um, some of our members of viewing it now saying, oh, I still get a few extra percent accuracy, say for carcass IMF, which changes the ranking of my bulls a little bit and might change my selection decisions. So they're happy to still do it. Some people are probably viewing it the other way saying, well, I don't get much extra accuracy in my view. So do I continue to still ultrasound scan? Saying that, if you look at our trends, we're getting more ultrasound scans than ever. So yeah, right. it's definitely, definitely not having an impact on how many people ultrasound scanning. But probably the discussion's changed a bit. So Ten years ago, I was probably more about do I genotype. I'm doing everything else do I genotype. Now it's more flipping a little bit. I'm genotyping, linked to the reference, have pretty high accurate EBVs already on young animals. Do I need to do all these other 
uh, additional things. Where, where it has helped, I think, is, is in before genomics, um, we're having some issues with um, skinny scanning. So scanning, particularly in Australia, young lean bulls, um, not getting a lot of variation and not getting much value out of that. So, so where the value is now with genomics is you're not sort of pressured into doing the scanning just because you need it to get the information, if you know what I mean. You, yeah. you probably say, well, is, is it worthwhile investing in that? And does it add any, add any value to my genetic evaluation and genetic descriptions, uh, which, is a, which is a good place to be? So yeah, the one thing we need to do is to keep looking at ultrasound scanning. So one thing we are, uh, we've got a little industry group here in Australia to look at um, what, what's the future ultrasound scanning. Not so much do we do it or not, it's more about what, what are the technology, because the technology most of our scanners are using is the Aloka Pi machines, which have probably been around for 30 years, um, done a good job, um, You know, still do a good job in relation to genetic evaluation, but they're not in production anymore um, and there's no doubt be higher resolution machines and other information we can tap into. Um, yes, you know, different systems they use in America, for example, more centralised lab processing uh, where I've, I've done a bit of research showing that you probably get better heritabilities for carcass IMF and things like that. So, um, yeah, we just need to work through that one a little bit because I, I can't see I can't see scanning stopping overnight. Maybe in 20 years we might have a different conversation if we've got a really big carcass reference in genomics, but as it stands at the moment, a lot of people are still doing it and still adding uh, value for people. Yeah, and I think you're right with high-resolution ultrasounds and obviously combining machine learning with that technology. Mm. There's, there's got to be a future there where um, the accuracy is, is lifted significantly and, mm. and, yeah, I guess you've always got to be feeding both phenotypes and genotypes into the system. So, yeah, where, where that goes in 20 years, we'll, we'll know in 20 years maybe. But That's it, yep. Um, I guess the other trait that tends to be of interest and it's – seems to be very different between New Zealand and Australia is, is mature cow size. And um, I think if you look at the percentile band table in, uh, on uh, in well, on an Australian percentile band table, if you look at a at Kiwi Angus on that, it tends to be hard to find them on the growth curve. They're down the, they're down mm. the bottom a bit because of um, more pressure on keeping mature cow weight under control and the, some of the terrain that they run around, particularly, well, both south and north island. Um mm. I mean, bending the growth curve is kind of is the holy grail, I suppose. Well, there's many holy grails in breeding, but but having a big 400 day weight and then a, a low mature cow weight is kind of seems to me to be the holy grail. Is I guess are you saying any trend towards that type of animal in the in the database, or or what what are we what are we up to? Yeah, without a doubt, like there's um, if you look at our genetic trends as a population to start with, then. All of our growth traits are going going up, ranging between a kilo to two kilograms per cow per mated per year, sort of thing. So um, per, per per calving drop, I should say. So they they're all increasing um, quite well. Mature cow weight's also increasing, but not by the same rate. So that's coming through by breeders being able to put a little little bit of downward. It's not necessarily downward pressure because you're not getting getting cows smaller. You're just not they're just not increasing in size at the same rate. Um, so I think the, there's a lot of questions out there for industry, and particularly in Australia, about where do you want the cows of the future to be size-wise and particularly weight-wise? Because um, at the moment, if if um, there's not a bit more uh, maintenance pressure put on cow size, that's not to get them smaller, but just to continue to slow their the size, how, how big do we want them? And is that good for industry, particularly around sustainability and, and climate impact and all those sorts of things? So um, one thing we do know that, we, there's plenty of animals in the population, though, that will bend the curve. So, you know, they've got high growth, um, even 600-day weight, and then they'll 
they'll bend back to that five-year-old mature cow. One, one of the things I think was holding it back a little bit in the past was just having mature cow in our valuation instead of because weights weights are an important thing and you could you could argue that it does explain pretty most of the in, input or intake of a cow um, just her weight but um, where the breeders wanted a bit more precision was describing them also for for body condition and for height so um, is is a specific cow line genetically big because they're you know tall and lean or are they moderate and fat you know that's that's sort of the things they want to understand so one thing we've done with angus with university of england we do have research breeding values out there now for um, mature body condition and mature height added to our mature cow weight um and our breeders can submit that data. They, they record that themselves, and we're getting a lot more data. And actually, the, the, the increase in that amount of data coming through has been fantastic by our members. I think showing that they, they really want to start better describing and understanding those cow composition traits, um, which is good. So what will be interesting to see is what that mature cow weight genetic trend and also the trends for body condition and height look like in another 10 years because um, it really sort of just at the the time frame where we've got that information going forward to them. Um, there's also some some interesting work being done by um, Animal Genetics and Breeding Unit, Matt Walcott, to, to look at that in a bit more detail as well um, from a research project he's run. So um, that's something we'll, we'll look to merge those two bits of information together and see see what we can get to. But it's a, it's a great interest to our breeders, um, mature cow weight. But I, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of school saying this is also quite a Divisions are not the right word, but people have got great distinct views in how how they'd like to breed for it. So some people are not so concerned about mature cow weight. You know, they think they've got lots of unlimited feed probably in, in cows and um, you know, don't have to worry about getting them through too much. We're down to other people that have got high stocking rates. You know, cow size is a big issue, so they need to select for it. So it's a bit of horses for courses, but I think over, over time that, um, yeah, linked to sustainability and, and, and climate, issues and I, I think it might force the moderation of the cow size but time will tell I guess that's just my my assumption yeah and I think there's rightly so some differing opinions I suppose depending where you're running them you'll have different theories on how big your cow should be and I think there's spots yeah that's right yeah, yeah the, um, the other cool thing that has sort of been I don't know how long it's been but the breeding values for structural traits which obviously will break down as never cheers anyone up and, and breeding animals that uh that have good structure is, is important while we jam a lot more production and all these other things into them. Mm. How do we've got plenty of data coming in for structural traits these days? Yeah, yeah, it's another trait similar to our cow traits. Actually, the structural amount of structural data is um, doubling in the last couple of years. Um, so it was always, I think it's up around um, 15,000 records per carbon drop now, so which is good. Um, um, and that, that now flows into where we're actually doing a joint valuation with American Angus, they actually do our structural EBVs, um, which is um, genomically enhanced, um, has some other benefits, allows us to put in um, also scores for cows, not just young animals. So, yeah, um, sort of where we've um, got ha- got the information available to them to select from, um, the breeding values for three traits, um, claw set, um, foot angle and, and hot, um, side view leg angle now, which is only just came into place in the end of last year. Um, but, yeah, that, that was really a function of breeders wanting to select on those traits to, to breed cattle that are more suitable. Um, bulls is one thing, but particularly for cow herds and, and making cattle that are um, appropriately structured as such. So, 
yeah, it's um, one of those traits that has lots of interest, that's for sure, and that's shown through the amount of recording that's coming through, um, which is good, yeah. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's great to see. And, well, yeah, we're, we're trying to track along behind Angus and do the same in sheep too because, yeah, there's big things that you can – I guess we all like everything. There's um, We often think that structural traits are 100% genetic, but they're not. So mm. there's always environmental well, environmental variation. And so trying to get a breeding value means we get we select the right ones rather than the ones that might be displaying a fault that – but that might be just how quickly we grew them or whatever whatever we've done to them. Yeah, that's right. So I think that's that's one of the reasons we know it's you know similar to the, there are heritabilities for the other traits I've talked about today. It's in that similar ballpark for our structural traits, so 0.2 to sort of 0.3. So it's definitely not all genetic. There's definitely environmental impacts even on the, in the same contemporary group of animals. So that's important why we have a breeding value to select on. Um, another thing we're looking at related to that um, a smaller research project with the University of England to look at um, locomotion in cattle. So using using this is more blue sky science in a way, but using um, image technology, particularly in, in human sports sciences and racehorses and things, to measure locomotion. So just trying to give a bit more information on on that because the question does arise that if you have animals, if you score things um, in in a range and you, you sort of say this is our preferred range. Um, how does that actually affect locomotion? Like you still need that that linking information because in the end that's what you're interested in, right? Um, so yeah, they're they're this kind of um, bits of research in the future we're looking at because there's a, a general interest in this whole area in, in Angus. We know we've got plenty of variation in structure in the breed, um, so which is good for genetic selection and, and research perspective. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I guess the last trait worth focusing, which I didn't uh, didn't have on the list, but but temperament is something I probably hear a fair bit about, and so obviously mm. there's a bit of selection, and that is in, is that increasing as well. The data around yeah, it's actually been our highest increasing trait being recorded. So that's through our disability scoring at weaning, um, mainly because people know you know we do have variation in Angus, and we've got some really quiet ones, and we've got ones the other end as well in the breed. So and, and it's quite heritable, so you can select on it, right? So we've had a disability EBV in place for some time, um, but yeah, with with um, you know recent I guess promotion is not the right word, but encouragement of breeders to collect more of that, that data, it's definitely coming in, which is really good. Um, our genetic trend is going well as well, so we're just starting to hit a bit of a upswing in, in selecting animals for, for better docility or higher docility, so that'll that'll, that'll come through the, the whole breed over time. Um, but like anything has to be done in balance, right, with everything else. It's not just a single trait selection, um, even though some people would probably say it nearly is in the docility case. What's the point of having everything else? And I can understand that too, but... Um, you know, it's it's definitely an interest. One one area we are working on though is docility is still the trait we don't have genomically enhanced, so it's still a pedigree based breeding value in Angus. So it's one thing we're talking to our um, colleagues at Agbu here at the university to to turn that over to a genomically enhanced breeding value, which will add lots of value to to that. Yep. One one thing one thing we did um, at the end of last year is though we we greatly expanded the amount of animals with a docility EBV in the Angus population. So um, before December last year, we used to only report EBVs docility EBVs on animals that had they had a docility score on themselves or their progeny. I think it was, or maybe their grand progeny. So it sort of limited the amount of animals in the in the analysis that we had a result coming back from. Now we put all pedigree in there. So basically, if an animal reached Reaches at least twenty five percent accuracy, you'll you'll basically see a docility EV report. So that's good as well. We've got EVs available on more animals, which is always good for selection, right? 
Yeah, fantastic. No, there's um, yeah, lots of lots of really interesting work going on there, and obviously it's the biggest breed of cattle in. What is it bigger than Brahman? I suppose I'm not sure about numbers. But. Uh, look, from a registered perspective, it is. But yeah, it's um, yeah, yeah it's it's an inter- interesting question commercially. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, from a as a breed perspective, it is, and yeah, obviously worldwide, the the black factors had had a massive uh, massive. Ten years, I suppose, in the sun when bull sales are reflecting it. So it's uh, being, I'm sure, it's exciting to be involved at, at your level in the breed. And we thanks very much for for coming along and, and sharing what's happening there at Angus Australia. Yeah, th- thanks, Mark. Enjoyed the chat. Um, all the best. Cheers, mate. Thanks again to our mates at Heineger who are proud world leaders in the manufacturing and supply professional sheep shearing and clipping equipment. They understand that their customers rely on the quality and performance of their products each and every day. Also thanks to our friends at MSD Animal Health and Orflex. They offer an extensive livestock product portfolio focused on animal health and management, all backed up by exceptional service. Both of these companies are wonderful supporters of the Australian and New Zealand livestock industries, and we thank them for sponsoring the Head Shepherd podcast.